We're in chapter five of the book that we're studying. This is one of the more important chapters in the book of Revelation. And in many ways, it's, it's one of the more important chapters in the Bible because and in this sense, in this sense only, we see a window lifted for a time where we peer into the throne room of God. And it's, um, it's not only which we saw last week when we spent some time in chapter 4, but here the focus is on Jesus, <clears throat> on the Son. And it is, it is a very, very important introductory chapter to the rest of the book. If you don't understand, uh, and I, I believe you will, but if you don't understand what chapter 5 is doing, then you don't understand the importance of 6 through 18 and what, what is really involved in that. So um, I wrote a lot on, about some of the background to this in your notes. So if you have that or you have access to it after the class, I would encourage you to refer to that. It's, that's on page 14. But it's really uh, focusing on the adoration of Jesus, the warrior lamb of God, the Davidic king and the lamb, this curious mixture that uh, at first doesn't make sense, but upon reflection, it's really what the program of God is all about. So John writes in verse 1, and remember, as he was instructed to do in chapter 1, he is writing down what he sees. Remember that? So you keep seeing this phrase, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. So that he is writing down what he sees. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... Okay, he, who is the one who's sitting on the throne? It's God the Father. A book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I, I comment on this in your notes. This, the description of this, this seven-sealed book, literally it's a scroll, was the typical format of a Roman will, a last will and testament. And it was very unusual because you'll notice it, it's explicit. It's written on the inside and on the outside. So another way of saying that, it's written on both sides. Typically, a Greco-Roman will was written only on one side, and you unrolled it and read it. But it's written on both sides. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to get you. So that's significant. What is also significant is that it has seven seals on it. So if you would... Meanwhile, what a scroll was, you'd roll this up, it would be rather large, but nonetheless, you roll this up, and it had seven seals along where the pieces meet. Got me? I mean, typically, it would have one or maybe two, and it was the family seal. The, the father would put his ring in the, the wet, the hot wax, and then it would dry, and to break that was an offense. It was illegal. So if you're following the image, here you have the father who has his last will and testament, so to speak, and it's really a document about the inheritance, about the future of the one who can open it. And so the lament begins in verse 2. No one is worthy to open it. No one has the right to open it. And the, the text says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. By the way, that phrase, with a loud voice, appears uh, 20 times in the book of Revelation. That's a, very, that's a very important emphasis. What is being declared, what is being taught, what is being expressed is with a loud voice, commanding authority. And here's the question. Who is worthy 
to open the book and to break its seals. And remember, book there, don't think of the book you hold there in front of you. It's a scroll. And to break the seals. Because, only, let's, let's think of the imagery, which I think is what this is. Only the legitimate son, the firstborn son, could break the seals of a last will and testament of a Roman official or whatever. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And John writes, personally, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And then one of the elders, now remember, last week we did this, you have that series of concentric circles, remember? So you have the throne, then you have the four living creatures, then you have the 24 elders. So it's one of those 24 elders said, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so it's opened the book and its seven seals. Let me read verse 6, and then I want to say much about both of those. And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now there's a great deal in those two verses that I want to talk about. I would encourage you at least to think about doing this in your Bible. In verse 5, the word lion underline that or circle it or something like that. And then the term in verse 6, lamb, underline that or circle that, and draw a line between the two. The only reason I'm suggesting that is the text encourages us to think of it in that way. He is not only the lion from the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah. I mean, those um, descriptive words are Old Testament words. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, I don't know if you remember that, he says of Judah that the scepter will never depart from the line of Judah. And we, we know, this is the way the Old Testament develops it, that the Davidic king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so all this is, what, what is this establishing? The lion from the tribe of Judah, and then you should have a comma, the root of David. That takes you back to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 24. And in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 11. These are themes, the root of David is the, that's a metaphor, but it's the, the royal line of David. So the language of verse 5 is what? This is the Messiah. This is messianic language. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So he's from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, which means he's the Messiah. He has the right to sit on the Davidic throne. That is profoundly important. Because the theme of the the theme of the Bible is from the very beginning in Genesis on is that from the line of David, I should say, from the tribe of Judah, and that's then developed down to the line of David, is going to come the king, is going to come the Messiah. The next verse is what many missed, that the Messianic king will first die for his people. And the language of verse 5 is the suffering servant language of Isaiah. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, so, you know, in, in the throne there, the Lamb. Okay, now the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist? They're along the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes walking. Remember what he says? Mm-hmm. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The, the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 especially, uh, although it's in many other places, but in 53 especially focuses on the sacrificial lamb, the one who will die for his people, the one who will die a substitutionary death for his people. And it says standing, not sitting, not lying, standing as if slain. And presumably the, the, the language of that descriptive phrase is he's got the scars of his sacrifice. He's got the scars of his sacrifice. And now now here, this, these descriptive metaphorical phrases, seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, focus on this lion lamb, this lion lamb of God has sovereign dominion, seven horns, seven eyes, omnipresence, and the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. We, we talked about that, I think it was last time or the time before. You go to Isaiah chapter 11, the seven spirits, that's the Holy Spirit of God. That he is the one who sends the Holy Spirit throughout the earth, through his disciples and through you and me, as we are filled with the Spirit, we then represent him. So dumped into verse 6 is a tremendous amount of truth about who this is. He's not only the Messiah, verse 5, he is also the suffering Pascal lamb who dies for his people. But as the, as the lion lamb, he's the sovereign lord of the universe who's omniscient and who is represented through his spirit throughout the earth today because that's his role. That mean the spirit. That's the spirit's role now that the lamb has finished his work. The spirit indwells believers throughout the earth that accept his gift by faith. So there's there's tremendous amount of material in these five, uh, these two verses, verse five and verse six. Now I just went through it. Did you? Did I lose you, or are you with me? Because if you don't understand what these two verses are teaching, you don't understand why he is the only one worthy to open the seals. Because verse 5 and verse 6 summarize his credentials. Why he is the only one on planet Earth, the only one in the universe, who has the right to take that book, that scroll, and open it. No one else has the right to open it. So, do you want... Well, think about it, or do you, do you, you're with me. Do you understand what each one of these symbols means? Lion, lamb. Mm-hmm. May I ask on the royal line of uh, David, so was Mary from the bloodline of David too, or I'm just curious, <clears throat> Joseph? Um, Joseph definitely was. That's the right. point of Matthew's genealogy. Okay. In Luke chapter 4, which is a genealogy, there's some discussion about that, to be honest with you. But it seems as if Mary also is from the royal line, her father. There is some, there is some discussion about the genealogy in chapter 4 of Luke, but I think that's probably, they both are of that royal line. But definitely Joseph is. But Joseph is not related to Jesus other than he was... 
but he is his earthly father. He adopted him into the language of Matthew 1, which again, all that does, uh, Mark, is establishes among the multiple reasons. The first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are all of the proofs why he's the Davidic king. The genealogy of chapter 1, part, part the first half of chapter 1, just shows he has the right through Joseph, his father, to claim the throne. Many of the Jewish people say that it's not because of, uh, Joseph is not, you know, genealogy does not establish through adoption. It does not what? It does not get, not get uh, established through adoption, but through uh, That is often the claim of a Jew. It isn't always legitimate, but that's all. But that's one of the reasons why the, 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 the genealogy of Luke 4 is so important. Because it's, uh, we're pretty sure it's following the line through Mary. Which in a typical Je- Jewish genealogical table, the, the mother is what establishes your citizenship, so to speak. So you, you could say, this is a horrible way to put it, it's almost blasphemy. Jesus has his bases covered. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a terrible way to put it, but but, but he covered his bases in, in in the scripture. Well, I mean, there's just yeah, I mean it isn't. That's not the only reason he can claim the throne, but it's just everything that establishes his right to claim the throne is validated. And 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 uh, what this is doing, this meaning verses five and six, what these verses are doing, I, I don't I don't want you to miss this, are establishing three things about him. He's a Davidic Messiah, he's the Pascal Lamb, and he's the sovereign God. Those three things are established there. The seven horns, seven eyes, seven, I mean, dispensing the seven spirits. He does what only God can do. So it's a, I mean, in two verses, which we've spent now about 12 minutes or so on, in, in these two verses are just loaded with doctrinal truth. I mean, they really are. They're loaded with doctrinal truth about who Jesus is. But what? why? To establish that he's the only one that has the right to open the seal, open the seals of the scroll. So are you with me? Does that make sense? Is there anything you want clarified there? All right. Given that, assuming you understand it, verse 7, and he came, that the he would be the lion, lamb, etc., and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now here is where I want to see if you really learn from our study of Daniel. What chapter in the book of Daniel comes to mind when you read verse 7? Someone make my day. Someone really make me feel good. <laughs> when you read verse 7, and he came and he took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, what chapter in the book of Daniel comes to mind? You are right, chapter 7. Jim made my death. Thank you, Jim. I, I, was, I was despairing. I was despairing. I was thinking my students don't know. But Daniel, remember, and one like the Son of Man come up to the ancient of the days. Remember that? In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13? So this is that language. This is Verse 7 is the language of Daniel 7. And when he had taken the book, remember it's a scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, remember the concentric circles, 
Four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. It tells us these golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. There's a, there is a metaphor that is unpacked for us. We understand what that is. And they sang a new song. Now that's important, a new song, meaning this is a worship hymn in heaven that is focused on the Son. Chapter 1, the worship, I'm sorry, chapter 4, the worship hymns were directed at God the Father. The worship song here is directed at God the Son. The Lion, the Lamb. Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals. Why? Here's the reason. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Okay, now that, if you're, some of your translations might have the different word purchase. You could see it translated as redeemed, because that's really what that word means, redeemed. Redeem means to purchase. So Jesus redeemed with his blood, that was the price, human beings from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now this is explicit. All four groupings of how we think about humanity, tribal, language, ethnic, and political. Now, men... That is really an astonishing thought. Because it says every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. That has raised huge questions among theologians. This is the kind of this is the kind of statement that doctrinal specialists and theologians like to sit up at night and think about and chew on. How is it possible that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation are represented around the throne? Verse 10. And you have made them. Who's the them? Why is it hard to, to look at because every, every knee is going to, you know, every, everybody's going to bow down to him. So. But no, no. Yeah, but this, this he has redeemed. The, these are the people whom we're going to see around the throne worshiping him. I mean, see, it's, 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 yeah, he made it possible for everybody to be redeemed, but he's, and, and these are a kingdom. They're, this is verse 10. They've made them to be a kingdom, priests to our God, and they will reign with him upon the earth. Mark, that's not every human being. That's the human beings that have appropriated by faith his finished work. <clears throat> But it's also raising, it just raises, wait a minute. There are many, many people and tribes throughout the history of the, of the human race. Those tribes are extinct. And ethnic, I mean, on and on. So it raises lots of questions, which we won't probably answer today. But now notice, notice verse 10. Jesus shed blood on Calvary's cross as the Pascal lamb, verse 5 has purchased, redeemed humans from every way in which we group humanity. And notice this. Of those, they're his kingdom. They're the citizens of his kingdom. They're his priests. 
what Peter calls and what Paul calls the priesthood of the believer. Every human being that puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ is a priest. And then they will reign with him. Joint heirs, ruling and reigning with Christ. That's, I know, you know at, at noon on Wednesdays when we gather, we do not get excited about biblical truth. But verse 10, that's an exciting biblical yes, truth. Because that is speaking of you and of me. If we put our faith in Christ, that this is of whom it's speaking here. We are part of, we are kingdom citizens. We're priests in the new temple. Right. And we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. Forever. That's sort of Mi we might need a minutely exciting. <laughs> <laughs> we might need a therapist because it said the second we see him, we'll be just like him. Yeah. yeah. Just like him. Yeah. Sometimes so, I just go to bed thinking about it. <clears throat> that's good. What a way to go to sleep. That's a great way to go to sleep. Yeah, but I mean, wow. We all need a therapist. <sighs> no, you don't need a therapist. You need... Well, you know. I know what you're saying. All right, now, do you understand this new hymn, this new song, in verse 9 and verse 10, is, is a marvelous hymn. It's directed at Jesus. And it is explaining why he's worthy to open the seals. And it focuses, it flo excuse me, it focuses not so much on his person. That's what we read in verse four and verse, or excuse me, verse five and verse six. Here it focuses on his work. Slain, redeemed, and purchased. And this is the result for those whom he's purchased. Verse 10. It's quite quite marvelous, actually. All right, now I'm assuming you're with me. So, any questions? I mean, just you—you you must grasp this because he's about—he's about to open the seals. That's what verse one of chapter six is about. Jesus begins to open the seals, and I want to go to the notes in just a minute. But let's stop for uh, Fred. Has a, uh, I just—you um, know—he bridges a gap between the Old and New Testament. He does. He unites it. And there'll be people that, of course, we'll never see here that we'll see in heaven, which is kind of exciting to think about his saving grace that was extended to them before we ever came on the, on the face of yeah. the earth. Yeah. And it, I think it's an encouragement, uh, what you shared, is to share with people that maybe we've never seen, uh, both here and maybe other places in the world, uh, knowing that his plan is sufficient for them as well and that they very well could be one of those people that one mm. day we'll see in absolutely. absolutely so as they say the sky's the limit <laughs> well it is and, and just think with me about this now I, I this was a bunny trail I wasn't sure I was going to go down but I think I'm going to go down it if you look again at verse 9 remember we got to put 9 and 10 together these are the ones he's redeemed, he's purchased, who will be his citizens, his priests, and will rule and reign with him. Every tribe, every people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every these are the four major ways we group human beings. Several weeks ago on my blog, Issues in Perspective, I did a I did a piece on what happens when infants die. 
And it raises that question. Because the scriptures do not explicitly deal with that. And the question, this is what I meant about theologian chewing on this. Um, did the redemptive work of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, is it possible for us to consider that in God's grace, because of that finished work, God can apply that to a baby, to an aborted fetus, to a miscarried child, see all those things? It, is that a way that this could be explicitly and specifically applied? And every ethnic group, every racial group, every language group, every tribal group is represented around the throne. <clears throat> that's good. I didn't think of that. Um, if that's true, and just again, if you're really interested, go to my site website and look at that a couple weeks ago. But um, it's it's an interesting thing that, because then I can consider that astonishing statistic that since 1974, 55 million babies have been aborted in the United States of America. That would mean that there are 55 million human beings in heaven. Is that possible? And he, because the Bible does not explicitly tell us that. In Second Samuel um, um, chapter 12, I think it is, King David has committed his sin with Bathsheba and all that, and the child that was born from their adulterous relationship is born. And you know the story. God takes that baby. But while David, David is praying and he's fasting and he's pleading with God to spare his son's life, <clears throat> but then his son dies. He's, he's a few uh, weeks old. And then the servants in the, in the palace notice that now that the baby has died, David gets up, he refreshes himself, he takes a shower, he shaves. Now, those two statements I just made up. But, I mean, he just, he, he has a meal. And they say, why, why, king, are you doing it? Well, I pleaded with God, and God has given me the answer, but I will go to be with him, mm. which is an interesting statement. And it's, it's the kind of, again, what is he saying? Does he mean I will go to be with him, I will die too? Or is he saying, I will see my son again? Because yes. Jesus, excuse me, David is, the way David is saying it, but it seems to be, the tone of it, this seems to be a very optimistic statement on David's part. Not a despairing, well, I'm going to die too. It doesn't seem to be that. So anyway, it's just, I, that's a bunny trail. Think about it. If you don't want to think about it, dismiss it from your mind. But it raises the, and it's, it's really a question. This is, this is the way I phrased it. It is really a question of the extent of God's grace. With the finished work of Jesus Christ complete, is it possible that God, the Father, will allow into heaven those who have never had a chance to hear the gospel? Yeah, uh, Joel. Um, I had a question in chapter or verse 10, the last phrase, and they will reign upon the earth. What, what does that mean exactly? It's chapter 20 of this book, a millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The thousand-year reign on earth. Capital is Jerusalem. And Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. You and I will be a part of that. 
I want to rule in Bavaria. I've asked, <laughs> I already talked to the Lord about that. Near the mountains, you know, where it snows. That's, I'm serious. That's now. My wife said, "Honey, that's not where we're going to be." You know, so I anyway, it doesn't matter. But so that does that make sense? I mean, it it is a reference yeah, to the literal earthly the kingdom. This isn't the new heaven and new earth. This is the literal earthly kingdom. So the new heaven and the new earth comes after that. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. See, I think this is a, just absolutely amazing. You think about all of the of the tribes and cultures that fought the Jews, you know, the Philistines and the, the occupants of all of the different cities that they conquered. And you have to think that somewhere in those cities, maybe there was one mm-hmm. who somehow had a enlightenment. Von Rod. Excuse because they, they look at nature. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even uh, we do know, for example, in Jericho, Rahab and her family, because they'd heard about Yahweh and what he did in delivering the Israelites from Egypt and all that, and it says she believed. Now, what is the exact content of her belief? The scriptures don't say, but it was sufficient enough from God's perspective because she's in the royal line of the Messiah, Matthew chapter 1. She's in the royal line there. It's amazing. Well, it's one of the, Joe MacArthur has written a little book on this, and it's just, he says, we have to think, when we are focusing on the grace of God, we have to think broadly about his grace. The means to salvation is belief in, the, in Jesus Christ. There is no question that. If you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of salvation isn't real. But what about those who've never had an infant, or a severely mentally ill person with an IQ of 10. Now, that's extreme. But, I mean, a severely retarded who cannot really understand rationally anything. Uh, I study under a man who wrote a book called Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe. And and, and MacArthur wrote a book uh, about three or four years ago on the same topic. It's just intriguing because in one way or another, we have to think like that. What happens to a baby that dies in the, in the womb, or it's an abortion, or a miscarriage, or five days old, or a year old, or whatever, and it is simply impossible for them to have the rational capability to respond to the gospel. What does God do with them? And so all these individuals, some of whom I studied, just saying, consider this through the lens of the grace of God. No, it's just intriguing. But the rational person has the, resp- has the responsibility to respond to the four revelations of God. Creation, conscience, the moral law, and Jesus. They're the four revelations of God. And how you respond to them then he continues to send more specific revelation, meaning uh, the gospel. R- Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. So what what do you say about the grace of God as it relates to a person that does not have the rational ability? Well, uh, Dr. Leitner, the guy whom I studied, he, he said, again, the Bible does not specifically address this. It yeah. doesn't. It's silent on it. But in that same, does the grace of God, could the grace of God extend to someone like that? 
who absolutely, I mean, just they're so severely retarded that it is incapable of them to communicate, to, to, to rationally think through anything, um, would God's grace extend to them. And MacArthur's, uh, MacArthur's book, it's a short little book, is the best treatment I have ever seen on this subject. I mean, I, uh, something like All the Little Children. Or it, it's a real clever title, Fred. I don't, it's John MacArthur, and you've probably all heard of his name. But, but it's, uh, it's not a very long book. It's a, not a real thick book at all. But it's, it's a, just a helpful way to think. He starts with who God is, what he's done, and then stresses his grace in, in, in those areas where people do not have the capability to respond. Uh, I have a question. Uh, we have someone on the other side of the family that's uh, a child. I think she's 53. And um, yet she's, she's, she plays with dolls. Mm. Mm. But um, I guess the question that comes to my mind, would God create a human being for destruction without the opportunity in one of these four ways to acknowledge the existence and put their faith in God? Would he actually create a person for destruction? And maybe that's not a fair way to ask the question. And by that you mean individuals like, like you mentioned in your in your family individuals who do not have the capacity to respond is that what you mean yeah, yeah i i don't know if i can answer it that way the way you posed it because uh because that's a, that's a good way to put it could god create someone for the purpose of destroying them eternally you know in, in hell <clears throat> and um I, I don't know um if, if i can answer it other than I would ask the question differently. Is God's grace, based on the finished work of Christ, sufficient enough to allow or permit or welcome someone who cannot respond to the gospel, either because of age, a very small infant or fetus, or because of severe retardation or something like that, and what MacArthur pleads for, and he, this is how he, he sets up his argument. He goes through seven key statements about who God is and what we know about his grace. Then the conclusion is, it would seem reasonable that God, because of what Jesus did, God can welcome someone like that into his, into his heaven. That's my response to that. I ask the question differently. Because, Fred, every one of us deserves destruction because of, of our sin. But is God's grace sufficient to cover the sin of that person, a baby, infant, fetus, or a severely retarded person? And what Leitner and MacArthur and many of these others would say, the answer seems to be yes, based not on, here is a verse which explicitly tells us that, but based on what we know about God and what we know about his grace. And the, this, the, cent the centrality, and again, just look, we have to think about verse 9 and how that verse is being declared. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. It just, it raises those questions. How can that be every? And Jim <clears throat> raised it. How about the Canaanites? The Canaanites 
according to the instructions God gave to Joshua, wipe them out. So if there were any infants among the Perizzites or the Amorites or any of the other Ite people that were parts of the Canaanites, is it possible that God is welcoming those infants into his heaven? You just have to process that. All right, look at verse 11. Now look at the response. Remember, we're in the throne room of God, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Remember the concentric circles from last week. And the living creatures and the elders. And the numbers of them were myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. So you're at the point in verse 11, an innumerable host of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy to do what? To open the scroll. Because the question that begins chapter 5 is who's worthy? Now the answer, the question is answered uh, by verse 9 and now verse 12. It is the Lamb that's worthy. Now I want you to notice, the Lamb who's slain, there are, it's a seven fold acclamation of praise to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Sevenfold acclamation of praise to the one who is worthy to receive that scroll and to open that scroll. Seven-fold acclamation of praise. Then it broadens, verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory, dominion forever and ever. You will see this particular praise throughout the book of Revelation. What do you observe about that praise in verse 13? Every created thing. There's something else to observe. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, Son, equal. It's a great statement of the equality of the members of the Godhead. Both of them receive equal praise. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that the Father gave the Son a name that is above every name, and at that name every will confess that he, and bow and confess that he is the Lord. So you see this, a theme that resonates throughout the Word of God, that there's coming this time when every created thing, some because they desire to worship, some Because they have no other choice but to worship. Say that again. I missed it. What did you say? Well, some who worship and bow down because they desire to, some because they have no other choice. And then you have the verse 14 the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Remember, amen is both a title of God and a declaration. So be it, so be it, so be it, so be it. 
though it's it's chapter five is a uh, a wonderful majestic chapter in the Bible. It's 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 adoration for both the Father and the Son, but particularly for the Son, because it proves something. He alone is worthy to open the seal. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. Before I get into that, because I want to talk about these seals. I want to talk extensively about that before we get into chapter 6. But any questions about the fifth chapter? It's a wonderful chapter. It's a glorious chapter. One thing is, like in the beginning when you said every nation and every group is going to be, uh, you know, present, pre- present in this situation. Representatives people, of, from every. But there is many of those who have never heard of Jesus either before or never accepted him. How come they cannot be there? Um, is, am, am I we, confused about it? Or well, we talked a little bit about that. Maybe, I know you stepped out. It might have been when you stepped out. I raised the possibility of what about Babies, infants, fetuses, miscarriages, uh, or you know something we think about in the United States uh, about severely retarded people who are incapable rationally of responding to the gospel and that kind of or any of the four revelations of God. Um, does God, in His grace, because of the finished work of Jesus, is it possible for Him to welcome them into His heaven? And if that is true, then that would explain how representatives from every every one of the ways we group human beings, and that's what chapter uh, 5, verse 9 is doing for us. I'm talking about the people who deny Jesus, who does not accept Well, they're not, they're not here. This is my question. So they're not here. They, they have rejected the revelation. They've willfully, intentionally rejected the revelation. So Any one there. of those four. No, not at all. Not at all. That's a confusion I have. So, people who deny Jesus do not accept him on their own terms, and they understand exactly who Jesus is, and they choose not to accept That's him. That's right. They're not going to be represented in that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, no. <clears throat> well, how does that work when Father God comes in, he says, sit beside me, son, while I make every knee bow and confess that you're Lord. Is that the same one, or... It's actually in Romans, isn't it? Uh, well, it's in Psalm 110 yeah. is where it, because that's, that's quoted many times. It's in, it's in Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's quoted, that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted again and again and again. And it is that, and listen, some, some people, some people, some people bow, angels bow, and some are subdued. Some are reconciled, some are subdued. Do you understand the difference? Some people are reconciled to Christ, right. reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right. Others are subdued. Correct. They they refuse. They refuse to respond to the revela- revelation of God. Any one of the four, mm-hmm. and they're subdued. Uh, that word. That's the word that's used in Philippians, chapter two, verse ten. I think it is that those who have rejected the revelation of God, and, and including those evil angels who join Satan in right. his rebellion, are subdued by God. They're not reconciled to God. Right. They're subdued. And that's a big difference. But I'm not talking about, and he is not, he's not, what he's talking about here are how is it, well, that every one of the groupings of humanity will be represented around the throne. And that just poses the question, how is that possible? We just speculate a little bit. I want to talk about the seals idea. And I would encourage you, if you have your notes, I would encourage you to just go for a minute 
with me to page, um, uh, it's actually 14 and into the top of 15. Um, be, because what I want to do here with this is I, I, I want to do the best I possibly can to have you understand this and the sequence that we're about to start so that what I can do from here on, I just keep reviewing this instead of going back and starting over every time. When, when it speaks of seals, okay, the seven seals that are around the scroll, that seal off the scroll, those seals we will see in chapter 6, okay? And Jesus is going to break one seal after another seal after another seal, and then those seals will be explained, okay? But what I want you to notice at the bottom of page 14 is that the seventh seal, when it is broken, begins the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet, when it is blown, begins the seven bowl judgments. Now, those last three sentences, do you understand those three sentences? In other words, what the book of Revelation wants us to understand, this is really important, do not miss this. Chapter 6 through 18 is organized around these three sequences of judgment. Now, I'm going to say that sentence again. Chapter 6 through 18, we're just about ready to start chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 18 is organized around these three sequences of judgments. Seal, followed by trumpets, followed by bowls. Do you understand? The last one I have no idea what that is. Pardon me? The last one, what is the last? Bowls. That's the last sequence. I, I don't understand what that means. Uh... I don't know how to answer your question. That's there, there are three s- sequence of seven judgments. First sequence, seven seals. Second sequence, seven trumpets. Third sequence, seven bowls that are poured out on earth. That, it's just, we'll talk about the meaning of those in a minute. Well, in a minute, in the weeks to come. But th- this is really, it's really important for you to see this. Because as Jesus breaks these seals and opens them, and then they're described for us in chapter 6, what it's doing is it's beginning to explain to us these series of judgments that are going to come upon earth. This is right before Christ comes back. This is God pouring out his judgment on earth. Okay? And it's organized around these three sequences of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven... And so that's what I tried to just reflect on this little diagram that I put at the bottom of page 14. So does that make sense to you? If you, can, if you can get that somewhat cemented into your mind, that Revelation 6 through 18 is organized around these three sequences of judgment. If you really, you understand a big section of the book. Now what I'm going to do next week, I'm going to distribute another chart. I don't have it in the packet. Another chart that I, I just started to use, which is really, really wonderful. That further explains all these relationships, and that's what I want to try. But if you don't understand the framework, this just gets gobbledygook. I mean, you just start reading. It's just gobbledygook. You just, how do I put all this together? But it, once you understand its structure, it isn't hard to understand what's going on in the book. But if you just jump in and start reading chapter 9, what's this, what's this all about? So you have to start with 6 and go through 18, and it makes sense.
At least I think it does. So I'm going to do the best job I can possibly do to help make sense of this for you. But now Woody is shaking. He's going, this is what Woody's doing. I'm just kidding. He's not doing that. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to study and to study together and to reflect together. I just thank you for chapter 5. It's one of the most important chapters so many in so many ways in the Bible because it gives singular focus to why we should worship Jesus. He is the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. He's the Lamb. He is the one slain. He's the one who shed blood, purchased redemption for lost humanity. And because of that, he is worthy. He's the only one worthy that can open the seals. And that's something we want to start developing and thinking together about next week. So, Lord, we worship you. We worship you this morning, uh, this afternoon, actually. We worship you and adore you. We thank you. We praise you. Because the Jesus that is described in chapter 5 is our personal Savior and our personal Lord. He's the one that we walk with. And we love you. We want to serve you. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that because of what you have done for us. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.